0: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast,
1: where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, This is another in our series uh, in collaboration with the uh, Association for Academic Surgery with uh, Dr. Fabian Johnson, who once again is the co-director of Peritoneal Surface Malignancy Program at Johns Hopkins and the chair for the Clinical and Health Services Research Committee for the Association for Academic Surgery. Uh, Fabian, who are we going to be talking to today? Um, Well, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sandra Wong. Um, to the podcast uh, She's a professor and chair of surgical oncology At Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine She studies soft tissue sarcomas, melanoma Mercosal carcinomas and GI cancers And she's well known and well funded for research In her quality and outcomes within cancer um, And so we're very excited to have you today As our, um, one of our inaugural speakers On this uh, new uh, venture between Behind the Knife and AAS
0: Thank you for having me Super excited to be here
1: Well, we would like to start off by going back, way, way back, to find out about you and really kind of understand where you came from to to get here. So bring us back into who you are, a little little deep dive.
0: So um, I'm a native Californian, Mm -hmm. and um, I'll fast forward from there to college. I actually majored in molecular and cell biology and Mm -hmm. minored in business and for some time I thought I would go into healthcare consulting. But I think ultimately the desire to be a part of patient care drew me to medicine. So I went into um, medicine and taking us way back, it was at the time where a lot of medical schools were really interested in training primary care physicians. And I had to really carefully navigate that during interviews because I think I kind of got that I didn't want to be a primary care physician. So um, I actually didn't know at the time that I would be a surgeon, but um, the lure of being a, an expert in something and being a specialist was um, was really apparent to me early on. But it wasn't until I was um, through with my third year clerkships that I decided to do surgery.
1: So what drew you to surgery other than the other specialties?
0: You know, I have to say, I really um, did not expect to like surgery as much as I did, but it was a combination of having this, this really personal relationship with somebody who was going to need an operation, and then the satisfaction that was derived from actually doing a procedure and, and, and fixing somebody or helping
1: somebody. So, fast forward, now we're we're in residency and we're having a good time, and, you know, what what kind of um who are your role models mentors that kind of started getting you down this road of your both your clinical and research career
0: you know i think mentorship is a really really important component of training and i was so lucky throughout my entire um, training and even today to have really excellent mentors i trained at the university of louisville and um just was really fortunate to have Kelly McMasters as my mentor. I actually worked in his lab and um, did cancer gene therapy. So um, it didn't take me all that long to figure out that while it was really interesting, that it wasn't something that I was going to be doing 10 years later. Fortunately, um, at the time, Kelly was working on the Sunbelt melanoma trial and the University of Louisville central lymph node um, registry. And while we were waiting for cells to grow and waiting for gels to run, I actually had a really great opportunity to work um, both in central lymph node um, for breast and for melanoma um, and did a lot of clinical research.
1: So how was that received? I mean, mean, you know, this is early on. You know, certainly there were more... Um, there's a basic science, a translational piece, and, you know, say, well, you can go over there and do some of this. What was the kind of setup during that?
0: That's a really good question. I would say back then the the mantra really was that if you wanted to be a surgical oncologist, you needed to do basic or translational science. Thinking back on it, it really, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, um, and it, that has changed pretty rapidly. Um, I think that ultimately it, came down to being passionate about something and actually being productive in something. So combining those two attributes, which um, made it okay to not be a basic scientist and still be a surgical oncologist. I think that is a completely lan- different landscape today. But that was a little bit more tricky back then.
1: Was, was there... Um I mean, from the chair, I know Dr. McMaster's probably was more supportive, but the chair, and then when you started going on surgical oncology interviews, that wasn't a template. That was, you know, was that a, a discussion? Because you said you navigated during your med school interviews of primary care. Did you have to navigate the same thing with uh, one of the interviews?
0: Yeah, it's really funny. I'm not that much of a rebel. I just think there's certain <laughs> things that I believe in and certain things that uh, you get passionate about and mm. you're able to articulate through that. I will say Hiram Polk, who was the chair at Louisville at the time, was very supportive. Mm. I think to him, it was really about having a passion for something and then demonstrating that you actually could be successful in something. And I think those two things really sold it for him. I've been really fortunate to have both of their support throughout my entire career.
1: That's something to be said for that that support uh, going forward, especially for our young trainees and those going into um, uh, taking jobs um, um, in this field. And so, you know, we're going to ask just a general question in terms of how you would uh, define health services research, and then we're going to pivot back around.
0: So my caveat um, with this kind of question is that invariably when you read a definition, um, you, you risk excluding some aspects that are important to some researchers in the field. I will say that broadly, um, health services research examines how people get access and experience healthcare services, um, including how the care is regulated or not regulated, how much care costs, and clinical outcomes as a result of the care rendered. Research considerations include health policy, social factors, financing systems and payment reform, organizational structures and processes, medical technology disparities, quality of care outcomes, and implementation and dissemination. I'll give you a one-liner. I think it's about healthcare delivery.
1: Mm. So it sounds like for those of us who are, want, are looking and want to be, this uh, clinical health services has a wide mandate.
0: Well, Fabian, you're a health services researcher, too, and I think that what you work on definitely fits under the rubric of of what I described. Yeah,
1: no, thank you. And so um, now we're in fellowship, and we're looking to go out for a job. What was the landscape for you, and what were kind of things that you were looking for, um, or... um, because, again, somebody might not have been looking for you, but you clearly articulated on multiple occasions now, being a rebel, um, you know that this is your vision. You had a passion. And so how, what did that look like?
0: You know, it was interesting. Um, at the time I was looking for jobs, the question of whether or not I wanted a lab still came up. Again, speaking to the mantra of what being a, an academic surgical oncologist looked like at the time. So um, there really weren't a lot of job postings um, looking for clinical researchers or clinical outcomes researchers or, I mean, really health services researchers. Um, I think that um, because I knew that was what I really wanted to do, I had to focus the job search on that. and. Again, this is where so much of it is about being lucky. Mm. And um, there was an opening at the University of Michigan, and I knew John Berkmeyer had just gotten there. And that was really an opportunity of a lifetime mm. to take a position at a really great institution, build a practice in um, you know, referral-based surgical oncology, and then have the opportunity to work with John and the shop that he was setting up there.
1: Yeah, there's, it's um, preparation and luck. It was a lot
0: of luck. (laughs) And honestly, a lot of people who just made a good team. There was a lot of devotion and dedication to to building um, a really great health services shop.
1: So looking back on it, what were the things, you know, because this was early in the Michigan um, experiment, right? Um, And it's been a successful experiment. But, you know, looking back on that, what did you see uh, as kind of the... um, the benchmarks um as as they were as john burkemeyer was building this and you were part of that process what were the things that as someone that is either uh going to another shop and trying to build that because there's not there's only so many michigans and and wisconsin's and northwestern's what were the benchmarks that you could say i want to try and recreate that in, in my in my shop and my experience
0: You know, I have to say, I think some of that was John's vision. Mm -hmm. Um, But remember, he was brought to Michigan to build a shop. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of intentionality around what he did. Um, I was just really lucky to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a well-resourced effort, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of talent that was brought together. And I think a lot of that was just the ability to bring people together in order to accomplish the goal of building a shop. Mm -hmm definitely benefited tremendously from being a part of that shop.
1: So as we're moving forward through this narrative, right, um, you know, one of the things that people you're a chair, you're a health service researcher, but again this idea that some some chairs, some leaders still, even though we, we, we could both agree we've come a long way, um, still think this is kind of a fad. Um, that it's going to go away, right? We'll use we'll use that as a nice word. And so, what what do you what should uh, you know? I mean, and passion may not go as far for some people and some in situations. And so, what would you be your recommendations to folks that are trying to scratch their itch and who are gaining tools or want to attain tools to be successful?
0: Well, I actually think the point you're trying to make is such an important one, in that um, not only is it about having. A mentor and about having a team, but skills acquisition is actually a huge part of health services research, just like learning the skills that you would need to be in a basic or translational lab. Um, so I, I think that that is a huge component of it that oftentimes um, gets lost in the fact that This is a relatively young field, and there are now many more opportunities to train. That wasn't as easy to come by back then. Um, That was part of um, my recruitment at Michigan was to get a master's degree. Looking back at it now, I feel really... Old in the sense that I got my master's degree as a faculty member. So many people now have that opportunity to train um, while they are in their um, residency programs. And I think that's really made a difference in accelerating the field.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, I've had this discussion with folks, and just as an aside to get your thoughts, you know, we, our lab time is set up in that you're, you're doing this lab, and then you're going to go back and do three to five years away from what you've focused on. And so um, and our medicine colleagues is different, right? They do their residency and their fellowships also often have this built-in um, situation. Um, and, and maybe it may have actually been better in some ways that you did this as a faculty because you're putting into practice. What should um, those folks who are doing this in their lab time, um, should How do how they keep their, their skills sharp? We probably have a little bit more of a leg up in our basic scientists, colleagues, because we don't need a wet lab necessarily. Um, but it's about building collaboration. So what would, you, what would you say?
0: Yeah, it's definitely true. I think without changing the fundamental paradigm of how we train academic surgeons, it would be hard to think that um, we could build it into that classic model of being a chief resident like there is in internal medicine or other fields. Um, I do think that keeping fresh and staying sharp is probably a little bit different um, in surgery, um, especially as it relates to health services research, because um, as you imply, we don't need a wet lab and we don't need a place to grow cells or um, keep animals. So um, that can be done. I think the tricky thing is, When you come back from your academic development time, you're a chief resident, and that is really hard um, in terms of all the clinical responsibilities, everything you need to learn before you finish training, and then always the competing risks of um, finishing up work from the the time um, in research and then thinking about your future, like applying for fellowships. So um, there's never... Kind of a <laughs> that much free time. There's
1: no dull, dull, no dull moments. You have to keep pushing through. Um, you know, one thing that I've I've taken already from what you've discussed is um, there's been mentors that have seen you, right? And so, what would you say folks should be looking for in mentors? Um, and I made it plural for a reason because it should be. And so what would you say we should be looking for for mentors in this field? Because again, sometimes you're not at a shop um, or you do your lab time and you go away and you come back to your shop. And so what should uh, folks be looking for?
0: So I completely agree with you about the mentorship team. Um, It always takes more than one person. I think it's really important to look for generous mentors. And I think it's important to have a diversity of mentors. It really, gone are the days where there's a mini-me model. Um, You really need different mentors for different aspects of of what you do, from a clinical mentor to kind of a career mentor. And even in research, I think there's a greater um, appreciation that people have expertise in different things. And I think we are just much better as a team um, than we are kind of as solo people. And that's true in clinical care. We work in such highly matrixed organizations. It shouldn't really be that different in terms of building a research
1: program. You were an early adopter, quote unquote. <laughs> well you are Boy, that just early. makes me feel you feel awesome. Are you feeling great?
0: F- feeling a little old oh, but, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in the early days of the Berkmeyer shop, right? And so Certainly we've seen the evolution of, you know, um, more and more opportunities um, for individuals. And so do you see any barriers um, um, that have been broken down to get there?
0: I actually think that it is so much easier to collaborate virtually and electronically today than it ever has been. So I I think some of the barriers were just time and technology. And I think a greater appreciation that um, our world is bigger than our individual institutions. And I think that's happening not just in in HSR, but across other disciplines as well. You know, um, I I think a lot about how our... um, Lives as surgeon scientists are evolving, and I think sometimes you look at surgical education or you look at um, global surgery, and I think they are kind of where HSR was a few years ago. So I'm really heartened to think that paths have been um, dr- uh, have been um, traversed before, and I think people can really learn from our experiences in HSR.
1: Yeah, that, I, I I agree with you. I think we we have so much opportunity now in leading that way. Are there any issues that you um, concern you going forward, or um, any gaps you feel need to be addressed?
0: The field has grown really, really quickly, and I think that um, we have to feel nimble in that regard. Uh, I think um, we have a lot better technology and methodology available to us now, and I think we should just be willing to take advantage of that. Um, a lot of what's been done and what continues to be done is a lot of descriptive work and hypothesis generating work. I think we need to take the next step. Uh, the field is really ready for this and it and um, it's going to take a lot more work into digging into mechanisms that explain some of the things that we're describing and then actually taking the next step and implementing the changes that need to to be done across the board and that'll be the next step. The challenge will be if we don't do that that the field will stagnate a little bit after a, a long period
1: of growth. Yeah, I think that, I, I agree with you. I think if we make that transition, some of the um, concerns, comments from those who are naysayers will be continue to be quieted because they'll see the the overall value added, which I think they all most see it. They just uh, think people are a little bit stuck in their ways. Um, so for our listeners who are interested in, health service researchers and uh, to, to become health service researchers what advice would you give them as they're embarking on these careers or considering this career as you you know i went into the lab too and i was like wow that was great now let's get a master's <laughs> <laughs> and so w- what what advice do you give to those individuals that are out there
0: You know, I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but I think, you know, being in a lab situation actually teaches you a lot. Um, So I never regret the time I spent doing that. But um, I do think that there's a lot more opportunity now for people to decide earlier in their careers to take this path and not have it be a – that – First path didn't work out, or I decided not to spend my life looking at immunotherapy or something like that. So I think there's actually a, a, a path of least resistance now because it's becoming much more of an accepted way to spend one or two years of academic development time.
1: I almost feel like, so I completely agree with you. Um, I I would I don't regret my time um, um, for a minute. I almost feel like we now have license to cross pollinate in a sense that. Um, I could work with a a translational researcher that's looking to bring something to the bench and thinking about an implementation aspect to that or patient or product outcomes um, measures as they're put in a trial. And so it almost feels like there's even better opportunities for collaboration. We're now hopefully breaking down some barriers. What what do you think?
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that concept of cross-pollination. I do think that... um, the use of big data, no matter how it's derived, essentially lays on the same statistical underpinnings. Mm-hmm. So I totally see that being the case. And I do think that as we do bigger and better clinical trials, there is a lot more ability for translational scientists to work with um, clinical outcomes researchers and health services researchers. I totally agree with you.
1: So we are going to all win together. It's going to be awesome. Um, and so what do you... What do you look forward to, you know, as we're thinking about um, um, the, the, the future of this? What do you, what, what do you look forward to?
0: So um, I actually think that we are poised for kind of the current generation of health services researchers to take on bigger leadership roles in American surgery. Um, if you think, if you really think about it, um, the questions and challenges that we do research in aren't, they're not new I mean, challenges in how we deliver health care, how we pay for health care are certainly not new at all. Um, but I think those things that we do research on are actually the questions and challenges facing health care today. And um, as health services researchers, we bring a unique skill set to leadership positions. And I think that is really what I'm excited to see in the coming years.
1: You hear that, boys and girls? You're the future leaders of American Surgery. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> so, um, I, and I take you as a role model myself, as an HSR researcher who's become a chair. And I think it's just, you know, wonderful to see. And I think it's just, um, for those, those of us that are in, are in this field and scratching this itch, you know, we, we, we look up at you whether uh, you know it or not. And so, now.
0: Well, thank you for that. That's overly kind.
1: <laughs> so, as we um, start um, looking down. We'll want, our audience wants to get to know you a little bit more. And so we're going to ask you a few little questions, simple questions. And um, first one is: you know, what's your favorite color? Blue. I, I sense blue, may, everyone loves blue. <laughs> what about your favorite food?
0: Are you doing a study on that?
1: I'm I'm going to. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be a qualitative interview. <laughs> this is my semi-structured interview. What what, uh, what about your favorite food?
0: So I'll give you a, a classification. Um, mm. I love carbs. Okay. So, um if you go with that, I I would have to say there nothing beats a really great pasta dish.
1: Ah. Uh. Now, is this, are you making this pasta yourself, or th- is this in your ornamentarium?
0: You know, I love to cook. I don't do it very often, okay. but I'm much better at eating than I am. At
1: the- <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you have any hobbies?
0: You know, I have to say I am in need of some hobbies. Mm-hmm. This has just been um, one of those things where I'm looking for something that uh, will, will catch my attention and, and get me passionate about it.
1: Podcasting may be it.
0: Podcasting might be it for you. <laughs>
1: um, what about, uh, do you have a, a, a favorite movie?
0: No. Have you seen anything good lately?
1: Um, well, I see, as my wife tells me, I'm a teenage boy. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> those are my sensibilities. I'm supposed to see, what is this movie with uh, Lady Gaga? A Star is Born.
0: I don't really think that's a movie for a teenage boy.
1: No, but I'm I've I have been I have been assigned this as a homework assignment so that we can discuss it and so uh, I expect
0: that you will ace that homework assignment. Yes, I
1: will, and I will discuss it passionately <laughs> <laughs> after I see Venom, which is a Marvel movie and ridiculous. That one uh, sounds more. That's up my alley. Okay, that's up my alley. You said that, not. <laughs> <laughs> and um, two more questions. Do you have any pets? I don't have any pets. Mm-hmm. Well, that can be a hobby too. You can—the Queen of England raises uh, what do you call these things? Uh, corgis.
0: They're, they're actually um, pretty cute.
1: They are very. I'd cute. love to have a dog. Yeah. I think that's on the list somewhere. There you go. And then, lastly, what is your favorite word? Why? Okay. <laughs> I watch uh, uh, you know inside the Actress studio. I'm trying to channel this as no, well. No, that's
0: actually my favorite word. Why? Perfect. It's a really great question to ask people.
1: And you can say it in multiple different ways. Why? 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 I like that. There you go. Or why not? There you go. There you go.
0: I think we should end on that note. There
1: you go. Well, that's Sandra Wong. Thank you so much for coming behind the knife and um, showing us how you built it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.